Let's get into Acts chapter 28, our final chapter. I'm ending one week before I promised you, two weeks actually. So less than a year. We started the first Sunday of January and um, we're gonna finish up today, Lord willing. So let's, let's get into Acts 28, but let me just offer some preliminary comments to sort of orient, orient you to the text. One of the challenges of modern Christianity is the constant need for us to help one another think and live in a Christian way in a culture that is so opposed to the things of God. We spend our weeks in a culture that is opposed to the things of God, and it's easy to get distracted and to start to think like non-Christians do, to act like non-Christians do. In the Gospels, Jesus showed us very successfully how to live. We then have the whole crucifixion and resurrection event, And then we have the Great Commission recorded in Matthew 28, where we are to go into the world and do something with the gospel that has transformed us. Then we get into Acts. And I would say that on the broadest level, Acts is essentially a depiction of the Great Commission being lived out through missionary efforts, through men like Paul, by observing how early Christians responded to and leveraged persecution for the glory of God and through their incessant commitment to bold, courageous, unapologetic preaching of God's word. So the commission is at the end of the gospels. The display of that commission in action in the first century is the substance of the book of Acts. And then we come into the modern era. And unfortunately, In broad strokes, much of modern Christianity is a far cry from the Great Commission that we see in Matthew 28 or the application of the Great Commission in the book of Acts. Many Christians have never led anyone to Christ in their life. They've never engaged in missionary efforts. Many don't even really know the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're part of the visible church, but they're not truly regenerate. They don't really even know what the gospel is. And many Christians, unfortunately, who wear that title, come to church and their mindset about Christianity is nothing. It's in no way, shape, or form a reflection of biblical Christianity. For them, Sunday is more like a hobby. It's just something you do. You go through the motions. We have people that bounce from church to church to church to soothe whatever their itching ears desire. Literally, church for them is more like a, a, a visit to the cinema. They're, they're just spectators. They're not participants in the Great Commission. Or they treat the Lord Jesus Christ like a genie. You know, rub the bottle. I, I, I love Jesus because he satisfies all my wishes. I prayed for a spouse, he gave me one. I prayed for a house, he gave me one. They treat Christ as some sort of a genie that just meets their needs and soothes their itching ears. We could say that many are great consumers rather than great commission Christians. Great consumers rather than great commission Christians. And what the book of Acts does is it confronts that. And if, even if you aren't one of those people who's a great consumer Christian, all of us Tomorrow could become that if we're not careful. And so the book of Acts continues to to challenge and prod and push us towards great commission living to, to denounce spectator Christianity, 
to denounce a Christianity that seeks comfort, that refuses confrontation, that denounces conviction. And the, the beautiful thing is that as Christians, Christianity is a superior religion to all the false religions of our world. And that's not a pat on our own back. That's a pat on the back of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's substantive. It works. It's a blessing. It gives us courage. As Christians, we have a moral foundation that never changes. Never changes. It's consistent through the centuries. We are empowered by the Holy Spirit of God to live courageously when in our flesh we are weak and wimpy. And, the, and we have a gospel message that, yes, at first offends. The gospel is, if you've never been offended by the gospel, you've never heard it. It offends, but when we submit to the offense, it then blesses. It blesses us, and it blesses others that we are living it out in front of. So this is, the, this is what we're going to see as we complete our study of this great book. Acts 28, the setting is... Paul had been shipwrecked. You remember the whole voyage across the Mediterranean. They find themselves shipwrecked on an island. They discover that the name of the island is Malta. So they're on the island of Malta. And they have a little bit, some adventures there. Then Paul continues his journey to Rome. And then there's opportunities there for some great commission ministry with both Jews who happen to be living in Rome and also some Romans. The chapter, I would say, is one of contrasts. It's one that contrasts the, the grave difference between those whose lives have been changed by the gospel and those whose lives have been unchanged by the gospel. And again, highlights the moral foundation of our faith, the courage that comes about in our lives from Christ, and the offensive but also blessed nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's how we're going to outline this, this passage. We're going to start with the first. Here's what I want to present to you. Foundationless morality leads to fear and idolatry. Foundationless morality. There's lots of different moral belief systems in the world, but they are inadequate because they're not founded and grounded in Christ, and they inevitably and necessarily lead to fear and idolatry, worship of the created rather than the creator. We'll start with the first six verses. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. You're probably familiar with Malta. It's still an island that's there today. The native people showed us unusual kindness. Keep in mind, they're not Christians, but they show unusual kindness, i.e. An, an unusually high level of morality. For they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because we had begun, it had begun to rain and was cold. Maybe you've read history, the history of England or Ireland. And one of the despicable things that would often happen in ancient times is when ships were wrecked on the island rocks, the natives would come out and they would bludgeon to death on the shores, any survivors of the shipwreck and then loot all their stuff in a Christianized country. But here in a non-Christianized country, in Malta, in the first century, they didn't do that. They showed unusual kindness and blessing to the shipwreck survivors. Now, when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks, 
and put them on the fire, a viper came out of the heat and fastened on his hand. It's like, give this guy a break. I mean, he's gone through all sorts of stuff and now he's attacked by a serpent. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice. So they personify justice almost like a, a being or a God without actually attributing it to the true and living God. Has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire, poor snake, and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Interesting. So after weeks of terror, they're finally on solid ground. And the Maltese display what is called unusual kindness in the text. This is commendable and shows that displays of morality are possible even in the lives of non-Christians. And if we're honest, sometimes non-Christians can be even a tad bit more moral than some Christians we've met along the way. So morality is not the basis or substance of our faith. Morality is displayed in the Christian faith. We're called to good deeds. But there are many people of other religious or ideological persuasions that also do good deeds. But the foundation is entirely different. We know that their morality is not founded in belief in the true God who has revealed himself through the Bible and Christ. And so while they're displaying a degree of morality to the shipwreck survivors, there's a bit of a problem. An unexpected event happens, a snake. The snake is the unexpected event. And as with all of Paul's other challenges, God always uses them for redemptive purposes. Let's just remind ourselves of that when we are bitten by snakes or experiencing disease or problems or persecution. God, God can use those for redemptive purposes. It could, have, could just as well have been a cancer diagnosis. Here it was a snake, but it could have been a cancer diagnosis. It could have been that a family member dies. Anybody experienced that? It could be the inability to conceive. Anybody here experienced that? It could be the loss of a job. Anybody here have experienced that? There's all sorts of problems. You fill in the blank. There's a problem. Here it's a snake. For you, I doubt it's been a snake this week, but we all experience challenges along the way. And in Paul's life, there is no record of an emotional breakdown, an emotional outburst. There's no record of fear or terror or freaking out or apostasy or blaming God or any of that. This guy was used to the fact that in a fallen world, there are nasty things that happen to God's people. He instead flings the snake off and instead of even running to find a medic, he just returns to building the fire. So that's person number one. And then there, his response is contrasted to the second group of people in the text. By contrast, the pagans, who otherwise are moral people, who in a sense mimic Christian morality on the out, 
outside, respond with fear. So just think, process that for a moment. Paul is moral, the Maltese are moral. Paul experiences a catastrophe in life. There's no fear, there's no flipping out, there's no blaming God. The Maltese experience it vicariously through Paul and their response initially is that of fear. And why is it that moral people whose morality is not tethered to the unchanging God, to the Lord Jesus Christ, often respond with fear to the cancer diagnoses, to the infertility diagnoses, to the persecution, to the snakes of life. Why? Why is that? Well, because their worldview has no sovereign and benevolent God who is overseeing all of life. But we have that. This is why your theology matters. You got to get your theology right. Because your theology actually affects your emotions. It affects your response to crises. If you don't have a sovereign God in your mind, who's also benevolent, loving, then it's impossible to respond as Paul did. But Paul had a sovereign God who was also loving, overseeing all of life. Christians then, who have that belief system in their mind, see life's serpents, whatever they might be, in light of the sovereignty of God, instead of fatalism, which is what they essentially are displaying here. Fatalism. Oh, he must be a murderer. If he's sick or sin, if he's sick or, or in some way suffering, it must be his fault. He, he must be hiding something. Fatalism. You do A, you get B. They were fatalists. Paul wasn't a fatalist. He was a sovereigntist. He believed in the sovereignty of God, the benevolence of God. And so the lesson for us is don't let snake bites freak you out. Don't let snake bites freak you out. Whether they come in the form of attacks from the great serpent, spiritual attack, demonic attack, that happens all the time, or snaky people, people that would seek to ruin your relationships or actual reptiles, physical threats. We don't let the snake bites of life freak us out because we have grounded our faith in a sovereign, benevolent God that controls all of life. He is creator, we are creature, and he's in charge even when we suffer. We can believe that. False religion has fear as their first response, but they have something else. A second faulty response. Upon the miracle of healing, rather than believing in the sovereign, benevolent God of the universe, they, they instead commit the sin of idolatry. They worship the creature rather than the creator. They decide, oh, well, maybe Paul is a God. Now, Christians worship the God of healing, not the person who's been healed or even God's agent in healing episodes throughout history. We don't idolize anything in creation. We honor, we appreciate men of God, women of God, people that have blessed us, people that have been used of by God, but we don't worship anyone except for God. We don't worship our spouses. We don't worship our pastors. We don't worship our favorite Christian artists. We don't worship anyone except for the true and living God. And ultimately, when God uses 
Aaron to impact you or you to impact me or Bob to impact Sally or whatever it might be. We thank them for it, but we give the ultimate glory to God. Paul was an amazing believer. I think we would all admit that and agree with that. But he did not deserve the kind of worship that they wanted to bestow upon him. But these are the inevitable responses of false religion, fear or idolatry. We either get freaked out by life, the fatalistic worldview. Is it going to happen to me? Am I going to, by chance, as a result of luck, get attacked or persecuted or bitten by a snake? Or we start to worship and bow down to the created things of this world. And we must avoid that. We must avoid that. So fear and creature worship are elements of false religion. And if you actually think about false religion today, it's present in every false religion, even into the modern era. Fear, terror at the world, terror at the prospect of death. You know how much money people spend trying to avoid the reality of death? Trying to mask the reality of aging? We were having a humorous conversation yesterday at our family gathering about hair transplants. No offense to you if you've ever had hair transplants, but... Someone said, Aaron, your hair is falling out. Are you going to get hair transplants? I'm like, absolutely not. Why would I get hair transplants? I like the fact that I'm getting old and dying. It's part of life. It reminds me of my own mortality. I'm not going to pretend that I'm not in the process of dying. My hair's falling out. Big deal. Get over it. It doesn't bother me. I'm going to get more wrinkles. I'm going to get sick more often. Eventually, I'm going to be up here with a, a walker, maybe maybe." sitting in a chair. Oh, well, it's a reality. That's life. You don't need to try to hide the fact that you're dying. You're dying. We're in the process of dying. We're getting old. That's how life works. We have, we have a sovereign God and a loving God. Why pretend that that's not true? It's life in the here and now. But there's so many people, they do everything in their power to try to mask it. Hair transplants, Botox, cosmetic surgery. You ask them their age, I don't want to talk about it. Why? We all know you're dying like every other human being that has come before you. You're getting older. You're less better looking than you were last year. It's a fact of the matter. It's a reality. Stop pretending. Stop being a poser. We're not, we don't live in fear of death. If God takes us tomorrow, no problem. No problem. He's benevolent. He's sovereign. He's loving. That's the way it works. But the inevitable response of false religion is to chew their fingernails down to the flesh, try to deny the reality of death, terrified at the prospect of death. And then if there's some sort of a temporary reprieve, some sort of a healing, some sort of a delay in death. They worship the creature rather than the creator. It's false religion. There's no hope in that. So trust in Christ, brothers and sisters. I know you know this because you're Christians, but the world is going to whisper a very different message into your ear every single day, and you can easily start to think like a non-Christian rather than a Christian and respond with the same kind of fear and the same kind of fatalistic mindset and the same kind of lack of trust in God that the world does. And we are a different people, not because of our own ingenuity, but because God has arrested us by his grace and changed us. So be encouraged by these words. Secondly, 
In Christ, we receive courage that blesses us and others. It doesn't come from your personality. It doesn't come from your culture. It comes from Christ. So scene two. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. So like his fellow Maltese, he was a very hospitable man. That's good. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed and putting his hands on him, healed him. Just like he had been used of by God time and time again through his apostolic ministry. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. This is sounding a lot like Jesus' ministry. It's sounding a lot like early ministry episodes in in Acts. They also honored us greatly. That's different than idol worship. You can honor people that have been a blessing to you, but honoring and idolizing are completely different things. And when we were about to sail, they put us on board. They put on board whatever we needed. So again, showing a lot of kindness. Here we have Paul administering his God-given. Let's just remind ourselves of this. God-given, not self-given. His God-given healing powers upon a sick man, as Jesus often did, as the apostles often did. But this time the response, as I've already emphasized, is different. They honor him but they do not idolize him. Now, if you read this text carefully, you might be asking yourself, like, why? Why Why in the first instance do they idolize him, but now in this instance, they honor him? I think the key is found in verse nine. Because when Paul was about to heal the man, it says, and prayed. Now, what is prayer? It's calling upon God to do something in part that you can't. So before he healed, he prayed. So therefore, the observers would draw the logical conclusion that it wasn't Paul that actually did the healing. It was the God that Paul prayed to that did the healing. And so they avoid the mistake of idolatry. And instead, they attribute the miracle of healing to God. There's There's a takeaway here when we do ministry in Jesus' name. We pray publicly. We remind people of the source of our usefulness, the source of our strength, that it's always God. It's never self. It's always God. And Paul, I I would even go so far as to say, and, and this is just a guess on my part, that not only is it right, was it right for Paul to pray, but I I suspect that Paul did it on purpose. Because he wanted to demonstrate to his otherwise idolatrous audience where the source of his power was from. So prayer is powerful in that God works through it, but it's also pedagogical. It has a teaching dynamic to it. It communicates something to your listener when you pray for them and in front of them. It says, oh, this person doesn't actually rely upon their own strength, but they rely upon a strength beyond themselves. Now, every success we experience in ministry is of God's goodness and for God's glory. We know that. This is the key to both power and ministry and the ability to be humble at the same time. Paul is powerfully used of by God. In that sense, we could say he was a powerful, dynamic, committed believer, but humble. 
because ultimately he attributed, attributed success in ministry to God's goodness and for his glory. Next scene. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria, with the twin gods as a figurehead. Why do we need to know about the idols that were carved into the front of the ship? Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there, we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up. And on the second day, we came to Putrelli. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. Brothers would, meet, would uh, refer to as fellow Christians. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. They made an extended journey to see them. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. The guy that's usually encouraging others now takes courage. The guy that's usually pouring out his life to others is blessed by the presence and the camaraderie by other believers that had come to see him. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself and the soldier who guarded him. First thing we learn is that Paul boards a pagan ship. How do we know it's a pagan ship? Because it specifies that there were the twin gods. These would be the twin gods that seafarers worship. The names of those gods were Castor and Pollux, and they were carved onto the forefront of the ship. So Paul, think about this, is in a paganized culture. He's being used mightily by God. And one of the instruments that God uses to transport him to his next ministry association is a pagan ship, a ship that had carved into its structure pagan idols. Why would God not bring him a Christian ship? (laughs) A ship with a cross on the front. A ship of victory. Because hear this, even in a pagan environment, God can use pagan instruments, pagan structures, pagan institutions to fulfill his purposes. We long for and pray for a more Christianized society, a society where law and institutions are based upon the benevolent laws of our eternal God. But even if that's not the case, God is still at work and he can still do amazing things. And God can still use pagan instruments for his purposes, and he intends to. God doesn't require a Christianized world to act or to protect his people or to fulfill his plans or to transport missionaries around the world. He can use pagan structures to transport missionaries, to transport the gospel around the world. Now, as Paul had served Publius's household through healing ministry and encouraged them and obviously been a blessing to the Maltese, now he is encouraged by the greetings that he received from Christian brothers who met him on the docks. Little reminder, ministry is always a two-way street. I minister to you. You minister to me. You minister to the person seated next to you. They minister to you. There's no one person doing all the ministry in a relationship or in a church or in a family. Ministry is always mutual. We pour out and we are poured into. We bless and encourage and we are blessed and encouraged back. We need to think this way. This also 
is part of the means of combating consumer Christianity because the consumer just wants to receive. The consumer just wants to gain. The consumer just wants to enjoy. But in the Christian mindset, each of us has gifts and abilities and sometimes we're the ones maybe doing the majority of the ministry and other times we are the ones being ministered to. And Paul wasn't Superman. He was sacrificial, he was pouring out, he was blessing others, and he also needed to be blessed in return. The next scene turns to an evangelistic opportunity, which reminds us that the gospel is both appealing and interesting to think about and reflect upon, even to the rational man, but it's also often irrationally rejected because it exposes our sin. I've experienced this in many gospel conversations over the years where you're fleshing out the gospel narrative, you're answering questions, and people oh, interesting, interesting, wow, wow. And then you get to the point that kind of confronts their own sin, and suddenly the face changes, and the countenance changes, as, as, as you might say in the old days. And no longer do you have an interested party, you have a foe in front of you. And this is the offensive nature of the gospel, but we must preach it. The offense of the gospel is that we have offended God. So Paul begins in Rome in the same way that he begins in almost every single Gentile town that he ever visits. He first ministers to the Jews. Have you noticed that pattern? No matter where he is, he's in Galatia, he's in Corinth, he's in Philippi, he's in Ephesus. His first audience is to the Jews that are living as part of the diaspora in those pagan territories. And then he goes and ministers to the Gentiles. In part, in part, because there's a natural cultural connection, but in part to also speak judgment upon Jews so they can never say, well, we, didn't, we never heard about the Messiah. It's like, no, you rejected the Messiah. So I went to the Gentiles. Verse 17, after three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. So he initiates the conversation. And when they had gathered, he said to them, brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hand of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I'm wearing this chain. In other words, he still had a heart that the physical descendants of Abraham would come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, his own ethnic group. He wanted to see them come to faith in Jesus Christ. So he appeals to them again. And they said to him, Oh, we've received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. So they're obviously not fully aware of what Paul had been through. The, the gossip chain hadn't successfully worked. But we desire to hear from you what your views are for with regard to this sect, meaning Christianity, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. Bit of a hyperbole, but kind of tips you off to their view of it. So they'd heard nothing bad about Paul the man, 
but they'd heard some bad things about Christianity and they want to discuss, they're willing to discuss these things with Paul. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. Notice the duration of the conversation. It's not a half an hour conversation. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said. So it's an extended conversation and it would appear to be relatively rational. There's no emotional emotional outbursts recorded. Some are like, yeah, this is interesting. Others are like, yeah, I'm, I'm not convinced but others disbelieved. So some, it's an extended conversation. It's not a, it's not a sound bite. It's an entire day of teaching and discussion and th- discussing and theologizing and thumbing through the word of God. Great numbers, we're told, were sufficiently interested to discuss the faith that they were there all day long. They were a willing audience. Some more convinced than others. But as a whole... There's something later in the day that Paul says that they do not like. This is where they have a more of an emotional reaction. And that is when Paul maybe steps out of his discussion about the law of Moses, steps out of his discussions about the prophets and confronts them head on. And you'll find this in gospel ministry all the time. You can thumb through the Bible. You can try to explain this is Christ, this is prophecy, this is what Christ did. Let me talk to you about the resurrection Oh, really interesting, interesting. Wow, okay, tell me more. But then when you bring it to bear on someone's life, that's when things often get a little hairy. And Paul confronts their sins in two ways. He, he confronts the fact that as a whole, they had refused to receive God's Messiah. And secondly, he, he confronts their ethnic prejudice. They're anti-Gentilism. They despise the Gentiles. Interesting because they're by choice living in Gentile territory. Here's what it says. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. Notice the statement. So they're listening for hours. Hours, they're there. He makes one statement, we're gonzo. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, so even appeals to the authority of God, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. And they had, they'd heard for hours now, the ministry of the gospel. They had heard, but they never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. In other words, the problem is not with evidence. The problem is not with biblical prophecy. It's not with biblical veracity. It's not with the truthfulness of the Bible. It's not with the proof that Jesus did what he said he would do, that he rose from the dead, that he was crucified by Romans. The problem is not with the evidence. It's never with the evidence. It's with the personal application of the evidence. For this people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears, they can barely hear and their eyes they have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. He goes on to say, therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. And then this 
extremely offensive statement. They will listen. They will listen. So here's where Paul steps out on a very long limb. And you know, in our world today, there's a huge problem with anti-Semitism, which is completely irrational. For whatever reason, I, I think I know why, spiritual reasons, people across the world hate the Jewish people. The Jews can do no right. People have left our church because I've spoken in favor of Israel's just war, and it is a just war. Anti-Semitism is a huge problem in the world. But in the first century, you know what a big problem was for the Jews? Anti-Gentilism. Anti-Gentilism. They hated the Gentiles. They called them dogs. And by the way, both of these things are symptomatic of the human heart apart from Christ. We are so tribal. We are so tribal. I mean, you could be born of the same mother and father and hate one another. Cain and Abel did. We're so tribal. And here, the tribalism, the arrogance of the Jews shows through. They still saw themselves as, and they indeed were in many respects, recipients of God's special blessings. But they'd taken it for granted. They were dishonoring Christ. And of course, in many ways, God has been punishing the Jewish people ever since this time. They've experienced God's hand of divine judgment as sad as it is because of their continued corporate rejection of the Messiah. We thank God for those that have come to faith in Jesus Christ. But they simply could not bear the idea that Gentiles would listen and receive the Messiah in the way they had not. And they just flip out. This is how sin displays itself. Oh, oh, interesting. Tell me more about biblical prophecy. Pastor, preach sermons on biblical prophecy. Could we go through Revelation again? We've done it twice, folks. We're not doing it again anytime soon. Love prophecy. Preach more theology. But what are you doing with it? People love to discuss things esoterically, academically. But when you're confronted, what, you're saying I'm a sinner? It doesn't go well. But here here you have Paul. He's unfazed and he keeps preaching. That's the key. You're unfazed. You keep preaching. See, whereas the gospels end with a call to do great commission ministry, Acts puts it on display. Paul does great commission ministry and it doesn't always go great for him, but he does it nevertheless. And as a result of his ministry, while many reject it, many are also saved. Now I want you to think about this for a moment. I was thinking about this actually just this morning before I came up. So here we are, individuals, and in the human world, we exist because some woman and some man, in my case, 50 years ago, got married and had me. And then they exist because a woman and a man got married and had them. And that's the story of the human race back to the beginning of time. One generation bears the next. That generation bears the next. That generation bears the next. And while many of us probably don't even know the names of our great-grandparents or great-great-grandparents, the blessing of life in the here and now was passed 
to us through their efforts, through their sacrifice, through their work, through their protection, by dying in wars for our freedom, etc. And you go back and there's a lot of people that have spent a lot of time and a lot of energy and a lot of money in order that we might exist in the here and now. People that we've forgotten about. And that's true in the physical realm. But have you ever thought about that from a gospel perspective? That every single one of us in this room, in the human wor- in, the, in, the, in the horizontal order, are here because of one or more of these missionary efforts, which we've studied over the last year. Think about that. And we don't necessarily have the capacity to trace the actual line of faith all the way back and who evangelized who and what movements were started by such and such. But Paul went out with other faithful believers and evangelized individuals at great cost to himself. And little churches were started and some eventually died out and others flourished. And over the last 2000 years, that seed of faith has been passed on generation by generation by generation. So in many respects, the study of the book of Acts is a study of your spiritual genealogy. It's a study of your spiritual genealogy. You've been blessed by it. And your job is to do what Paul and others have done, to bless future generations by it until the Lord Jesus comes back, to faithfully preach the gospel to your generation in the hopes that some would endure to preach the gospel to the next generation. And wouldn't wouldn't it be a wonderful thing if we have this opportunity in heaven to see all of the lives that we have been impacted by and to thank and bless those that have impacted us? It's one thing to say, we believe in the Great Commission. It's another thing to participate in it. Paul was faithful even when people rejected him. Others, the Holy Spirit worked on them and they were converted. Paul doesn't cut and run. It says in verses 30 and 31, and these are the final two verses in the book. He lived there two whole years at his own expense. And welcomed all who came to him. And here's how the, 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 the final, here's the final, final, final verse of the book of Acts. Proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. That's your commission. That's what you need to do now. You've been commissioned in the gospels. You've seen it put on display. This sermon series ends with a call to do Great Commission ministry. Not to be a great consumer Christian, but to be a great commission Christian. Find people and preach the gospel. Suffer hard for Christ. Persist under persecution. Be peace in the storm of life. Be a great commission Christian every day. By the way, we don't need to recreate the circumstances of first century Mediterranean world in order to be successful Christians. You hear people, oh, you know, what we really need in the church is we need to all go back to meeting in homes. If we just meet in homes like the early Christian, talk about a simplistic, reductionistic, ridiculous understanding of the purpose of the book of Acts. It's nonsense. We don't need to recreate the circumstances, dress like first century people, meet in the same place as they did, even have the same liturgy or ministry programs. Times change. Our culture is different. But we need to communicate the same message. We need to recommit to the same commission that drove early Christians across the Mediterranean through storms 
and snake bites and trials and beatings and shipwrecks for the cause of Christ. And frankly, even as I consider my own life, one of the most convicting realities of studying the book of Paul is how soft of a man I actually am, how wimpy and weak and pitiful I often am, how much I want comfort in my own Christian life. Maybe you can relate to this. We love to clap for the Pauls of life, read Fox's book of martyrs. But when it comes to us, we want comfort. And if the temp's not just quite right, and our kids aren't embraced the way we want, or something said in a sermon that offends us, we'll just move to another church. Or we'll just, we'll just, God hasn't provided for any, so we'll just abandon Jesus because he didn't come through for me. You know, I rubbed the bottle and he never came out. And maybe we need to repent as a church for how soft and wimpy we often are, but also then to call upon the Lord to give us spiritual strength, not from within, but from beyond. And that requires prayer. To give us strength that God would encourage us and equip us in order to do the work of the ministry. So let's commit ourselves, recommit ourselves, in a new fresh way commit ourselves to great commission living, being willing to sacrifice all for the cause of Christ. And let's allow him then to use us to bless the world and future generations in an amazing way until Jesus Christ comes back and all things are restored and made new.